Good morning. I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. And this is Talking About California. This morning, we return with the final segment in our four-part series, South America Today. This morning, we're going to look at Chile, so often in the news and central in understanding the continent. Our guest is Aaron Taus. Aaron Taus is an affiliated researcher at the Austrian Institute for International Affairs and host of Counter Hegemony, a YouTube channel about international politics, globalization, war, peace, crisis, and social change in the 21st century. Between 2013 and 2023, he worked as Associate Professor of International Politics at the National University of Columbia. His research has focused on the political economy of Latin America, social protest movements in Colombia, Argentina, and Chile, and and the, the state and the periphery and the crisis of global capitalism. His latest publications include Paramilitary Groups and the State Under Globalization, Political Violence, Elites, and Security, Colombia's Road Towards Total Peace, and Colombia at the Crossroads in the New Left Review with Forrest Hilton. Good morning, Professor Taos. Hey, good morning, Professor Taos. Uh, can we call you Aaron? Yes, you can call me Aaron. Thanks yeah. for the invitation. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm sorry about my stumbling in English words that I want to pronounce them like in Spanish. We'd like to get to know a little about whom we're talking to, as do our listeners. So would you mind, how did you get interested in Latin America? What took you to South America? During my times at, at high school, I had Spanish, and during uh, during a period, I developed some interest in the revolutionary processes of Latin America, especially focusing on on Cuba during during that period. And um, during my studies at Yale University, um, um, I deepened that that interest. I focused primarily on. Um, neoliberal restructuring in Latin America, but that was also my, my, the topic of my thesis, um, master's thesis. And then uh, during my, my PhD studies, I also focused on the protest movements and the, 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 the crisis of neoliberalism in Latin America, especially on the um, recuperated factories in Argentina. And in 2008, I moved to Latin America. Um, I lived in Peru for one and a half years before moving to, to Colombia, um, where I started working at a private university in, in Medellin, focusing on international conflicts and uh, international politics before uh, finishing my PhD at the University of Vienna. And in 2013, I got a tenure position at the National University in, of Colombia in Medellin, where, as you pointed out before, worked for uh, more than 10 years as an associate professor in the field of uh, international politics. Okay, well, uh, Chile, I hear, I've not been there, is a beautiful country, a narrow ribbon of land along the South Pacific Ocean. Right. On one side, the um, 
the ocean, on the other, the Andes Mountains, the southernmost country in the world, perhaps you could offer an impression of Chile as a country, geographically, demographically. And Loretta, in this case, uh, breaking from our pattern, you, you might just come in a little bit, not too much. We're not interviewing you. Come in a little bit and, uh, uh, and join uh, Aaron in, in this part of the conversation. Absolutely. So, Go ahead, Aaron. Tell tell us right, right, uh, your right. perspective of as, Chile. Yeah, as Cal um, pointed out, Chile is located in the western part of South America, uh, stretching over two thousand six hundred miles from north to south um, along a very narrow strip uh, of land between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. And uh, Peru, uh, sorry, Chile. Uh, uh, she has the borders with Peru in the north with Bolivia in the northeast and Argentina in the east. It has a population uh, of about um, 18 million uh, people. Capital is called Santiago de Chile. It's a very centralized um, country. Uh, Chile's economy is very export-oriented. Uh, its main exports are copper, salmon, also uh, fruits, uh, and its uh, main um, um, business partners are the United States and other co uh, countries in Latin America. And what's very relevant for, for discussion of uh, the political economy of Chile is it's not only its dependency of exports, but also the fact that Chile is home to the world's largest copper deposits. So uh, as, uh, as, as we speak, uh, Chile's economy is still primarily focused on the, on the export of copper. And uh, this is something that has shaped its economy, its social structure, politics, and was also uh, a, a big topic during the, um, the, the social uprising that, uh, that rocked the country between 2019 and uh, maybe 2021, primarily uh, in, during that period. Um, Chile is also, it's a great country, um, been there twice, unfortunately never lived there, but I uh, was there um, during, uh, uh, I think it was 2008, very briefly, and then again during the protests 2019 and 2020. Um, yeah, and, and Chile is, is also um, known on the one hand for having... Um, had the, the first socialist uh, president that was elected by popular vote uh, in the name of, uh, in the person of um, Salvador Allende in 1970. And of course, uh, as we might talk about later on, Chile is also known for its own 9-11, the coup d'etat uh, backed by the United States that toppled Salvador Allende in 1973. And uh, following that coup, Chile also became one of the world's, or maybe the world's first neoliberal laboratory um, in, in the sense that um, neoliberal reforms were, were introduced by the, the military junta under the leadership of uh, Augusto Pinochet and this um, neoliberal reforms still shaped political economy, social structures of uh, Chile as we speak. Right. Thank you, Aaron, for uh, that description of Chile. Um, a very interesting country. The listeners know already that I am from Chile. And when I try to describe Chile, I always say that it's the length uh, 
between San Francisco and New York to have an idea of the vast, um, long uh, line that uh, is next to the Pacific Ocean and the incredible Andes region, naturally, the mountains that we in Chile, we always say that the mountains are pushing us into the water and any time we'll be ending in in the ocean instead of being in, in terra firme, no? I forgot something, I'm sorry. It also yeah, is great wine. Great wine. <laughs> yeah, Chile was, uh, you know, the Spaniards came in the 1500s, in the early 1500s. Um, so they settled over there and uh, naturally they brought grape vines with them. This is legendary story in Chile. The Catholic priest couldn't perform any mass or rituals without wine. So, uh, and the Chilean um, climate, uh, it was perfect to grow uh, wine, which is, I know, appreciated by wine drinkers and uh, all over the world. So thank you for mentioning that. And Valparaíso is an amazing place to visit. I love the city. Yes, and the connection between Valparaíso and San Francisco here in California is legendary. Uh, when it was the gold rush in the in California, the whole population, which was called, it was just a camp, you know, Yerba Buena, before it was called actually officially San Francisco after the mission that was established in the area. Uh, it was completely fed by uh, the food coming from Chile because from Valparaiso to San Francisco, it takes only 15 days in a boat to... To get here, so so the supply of um, food and meat it was big during the gold rush. So we, we claim to have a strong connection uh, between our countries and these two important ports that you just mentioned, Valparaíso and San Francisco. So thank you for for depicting uh, Chile. Um, you already mentioned that uh, this year is the fifth anniversary of. Uh, tragic coup d'etat that occurred in Chile in 1973. You mentioned that Allende was elected in 1970. For those that don't know, Allende ran for president for the presidency 11 times, and he lost 10 of them and was finally elected in 1970. He used to joke saying that in his... Uh, resting uh, place, they will put uh, the stone, the gravestone, that will read, here lays the future president of Chile. Because he ran so many times, right? Anyway, Allende was elected president, as you mentioned, it was the, the first socialist president elected democratically. And um, unfortunately, he was... Um, tell, tell us about that. Oh, hold on. Carl wants to add something about this. Oh, uh, uh, Aaron. Well, well, I will. It's it's uh, sometimes known this 50th anniversary as Chile's 9/11, uh, a very important event, really on a world scale. So go go right. ahead. Yeah, it's called 9/11 because it was the the the, um, the coup d'état also occurred on 9/11. But as you said, in in uh, in, the, in the year 1973. So as I mentioned before, uh, Allende was uh, or became the first socialist head of state in a liberal democracy in Latin America in 1970. And as uh, Loretta mentioned, um, Allende's victory was the, 
I would say the culmination of decades of political struggle and social mo mobilization and uh, popular organizing in, in, in Chile by, or by Chile's left. Chile by, in, in, in the 1970s or even during the 1960s at most, probably the, the world's most organized left or at least the most organized left in Latin America. And once in office, um, Allende began to implement the socialist program that included um, the nationalization of large-scale industry, such as copper mining and also banking. He also strengthened the, strengthened the, the public health care system, public educational system, and um, launched the public works, work, works program. He began to redistribute land and go after the, the, uh, the power held by large landowners in Chile, and he also introduced a pro uh, progressive uh, tax reform. So it was one of the, let's say, um, most radical attempts ever launched to, to really go against the, the, the power of Chile's oligarchy and also the interests of foreign capital. Um, uh, the United States and also Chile's oligarchy, um, of course, uh, didn't like uh, Allende's democratic road to socialism. And they, uh, the United States began to uh, support uh, let's say those um, forces within Chile, especially within the military, but also, um, you know, the Chile's oligarchy was uh, from the get-go um, uh, against any attempt, of course, to to uh, to transform Chile's economy to, to their detriment. And in September 1993, the Chilean Army General Augusto Pinochet uh, orchestrated, uh, orchestrated a U.S.-backed military coup against Allende and uh, where Allende got killed during that uh, that coup, and Pinochet and his military uh, uh, junta um, uh, ruled the country as a de facto dictator until 1990. So, um, so Aron, can I let me introduce? Let me uh, interrupt you here. But uh, you just said that uh, naturally the United States didn't like these changes. Could you explain why these changes? would affect so much um, that would be so unpleasant for the United States. Being a country that is so insular, and nevertheless, they have to intervene about these changes that Allende was introducing. Right. Um, the United States saw this as a threat because, as I said before, I think the, the fact that Allende was the first uh, democratically elected socialist president, of course, could have had ripple effects in Latin America and also around the world. So um, it it, it um, and the United States, of course, um, as and during that period was was trying to prevent any let's say socialist government and not only um, getting elected but also of course succeeding in its in its uh, reform agenda because this would let's say if Chile had had worked then if Allende could have implemented his socialist. Um, uh, program and if if the um, uh, living conditions for for the average Chilean worker uh, had improved, this could have of course also uh, posed a threat to other oligarchic uh, regimes in Latin America, but not only Latin America, but even in other parts of the world. So the United States, of course, was always um, let's say focused on uh, focused on preventing any socialist success story. In, in Latin America and, and around the world. And uh, following this idea of the domino effect, say if one country falls, right, it's one country uh, 
shift to the left and uh, and and let's say and, and there are really let's say some progressive changes in in to the benefit of the of, of the working population of course Latin America being the the world's most unequal <clears throat> socially unequal continent of course there there's uh, back then and still today there's a lot of potential for revolutionary change right so it would have it could have meant not only a toppling of other oligarchies uh, oligarchies in in Latin America but it, of course it would have also meant um let's say it would have it could have also posed a threat to the hegemonic position of the United States in the region, right? So I would say um, the United States, of course, wanted to ensure that um, that uh, the, uh, the Allende government uh, failed in order to demonstrate uh, to the world that uh, capitalism is the only basically functioning system in town and that any sort of, of uh, or any attempt to go beyond capitalism and to really Let's say to to construct the socialist alternative is bound to fail. And what about the Chicago boys? Who were they? What's right. that about? Uh, so also very important as, as as I mentioned before, Chile became um, for the world's first neoliberal laboratory under the um, under the leadership of of, of Pinochet. And uh, what I mean by this is that the military uh, junta privatized social security and hundreds of state enterprises liberalized trade, uh, exchange rates, um, foreign direct investment, de de deregulated the, the economy and uh, also banned trade unions. Chicago Boys is basically a reference to Chilean economists uh, who studied during that period at the University of Chicago which was uh, one of the, let's say, centers of neoliberal thought. Um, Milton Friedman was, uh, let's say, the leading neoliberal economist during that time. He came to Chile after the, after the coup uh, against uh, um, Allende and hammer, or, or helped hammer out a, a neoliberal reform agenda. And the Chicago boys that were educated at the university in Chicago under the aegis of, of um, of Milton Friedman and other neoliberal economists came back to to Chile and then uh, pushed for these neoliberal reforms. But it's very important that neoliberalism in Chile was introduced um, uh, with brute force, right? Because the the military uh, regime under 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 Pinochet at least killed three thousand two hundred leftists and political dissidents and and tortured, um, jailed, and, and disappeared uh, 10,000s of other people, right? And, and many, many people um, were forced to, to leave the country. So this, this relation between, on the one hand, military, um, military force, torture, uh, uh, persecution, and uh, political uh, political terror uh, under, the, uh, under, under, under uh, Pinochet, went hand in hand with the neoliberal uh, restructuring of the economy. Right, and I I want to also uh, clarify that um, the people that were killed, uh, you know, some people say, well, 3,000 people perhaps is not such a large number of other, in other situations we find. And, uh, and I want to quote here uh, Ariel Dorfman, who confronted with this fact, he usually says, uh, one person is enough. If it were your father, your child, your child, 
uh, or your brother, you won't say that you need a large number, but also the number of people that were killed at the time, the they were all social leaders that have gained notoriety uh, during the time of pre uh, Agenda's presidency, and they have found uh, space where to express these ideas to help the most impoverished nation. Uh, Chile at the time, it was a strong republic with laws that protect workers, and that even uh, got even uh, more, uh, we gained more protection during the years of Allende, and he made sure that poor people will have food and, and public education and all the things, yeah. which really um, forces me as a Chilean to say uh, what a shame that the United States actually went and attacked Chile since it was a democratic process. So so much for democracy, let's say, at least yeah. in 1973. We should pause here, Aaron, just to say that this is KZYX Community Radio, listener-supported community radio. And this is Loretta Rojas, and I'm Cal Winslow, and we're talking with Aaron Taus of the Austrian Institute for International Affairs. What about the going forward from the, the terror you've just described? What about the Pinochet uh, years and uh, taking us up into uh, the first big change? Right. Um, as I said, the, the neoliberal structure of Chile unfolded under Pinochet, and um, the neoliberal structure reforms were codified in the 1980 constitution that is still in place um, nowadays. And this is very important because, uh, as we know, during the 2019-2020 uh, political or social uprising, the, the, uh, the protesters demanded a new trans, uh, constitution because this constitution is still in place and it still shapes uh, uh, social, political, economic life in, in, in Chile as we speak. In that constitution, um, Pinochet enshrined the privatization of natural resources, education, healthcare, as we mentioned before, also the pension system. And it, the constitution also provided um, subsidies to extractive companies and created strong investment centers for foreign capital. So um, you could you could say that during Chile, uh, sorry, during the the, the, the Pinochet dictatorship, um, um, the the groundwork was laid for a long-lasting uh, political, economic, and social transformation of Chile. So um, and um, let's say that the the political. Uh, a terror that was directed against social leaders, social, uh, socialist parties, trade unions, workers, organizations in general, of course, had also long-lasting effects in, in political terms because basically Chile's left was uh, was uh, was weakened, and, uh, and 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 of course uh, this meant that even after um, the uh, military dictatorship, uh, Chile's left was pretty. Uh, uh, was 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 in a really bad in a really bad state. Um, the dictatorship ended in 1990 in 1999. Uh, stepped down. Um, in 98, there was a uh, a plebiscite um, uh, organized by um, by Pinochet, in which he basically um, wanted to ask the population if he could uh, uh, run for another for another eight year uh, presidential term. Um, but he lost that referendum. Fifty-six percent of the voters rejected the extension of his 
presidential term. Um, then there were elections in 89, and Pinochet basically handed over um, uh, 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 power to the, uh, to the new government. But as the constitution also uh, foresaw, Pinochet remained uh, commander in chief of the army until 1998. And what's very important is that between um, 1990 and 2010, you would have a, um, uh, let's say, a coalition of center-left political parties uh, in power, uh, the so-called Concentración de Partidos por la Democracia. And this coalition consolidated the neoliberal regime. I mean, on the one hand, of course, uh, Pinochet during the first eight years ensured that uh, that nothing would would uh, or nothing could be changed. But um, uh, I, I think it's important to understand that even the decades after the uh, this coalition of center left uh, political parties also uh, 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 consolidated um, the new regime. To, uh, which benefited uh, to this oligarchy and, and, and foreign capital. Um, and let's say um, from 2001, but especially be between 2006 and 2011, Chile witnessed a wave of social protests. And it's, and, and it's interesting to mention that especially Chile's younger generation that weren't uh, alive during the... Um, during the Pinochet years spearheaded uh, the, the, those protest movements. You had uh, in 2006, a big wave of, uh, of uh, um, uh, uh, protests that were organized by secondary students. And in 2011, so months of protests uh, spearheaded by uh, university students, right? But then uh, during the 2010 uh, decade, um, you would also see some other protest movements joining Let's say this this wave of uh, or this 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 growing uh, wave of discontent this uh, uh, discontent that was um, increasingly directed to different uh, let's say um, problems related to uh, neoliberalism, right? Right. You are you are mentioning the excuse me to interrupt you, Aaron. You are uh, talking about the uh, the period when the. Um, the students from what we call here high school, high school students uh, started yeah. occupying their schools and stopping all activities from happening. Yeah. They uh, It was the time where we used to describe this generation. It was strongly described in Argentina, and I don't know if you can talk a little bit about Argentina, who suffers, unfortunately, kind of a similar, even yeah. larger number of deaths during their dictatorship. Um, we used to call it the, the generation of ni-ni. In Spanish, we say ni trabajo, ni, ni, ni universidad, no? no not uh, opportunity to work and no opportunity to study. And this yeah. protest uh, really uh, forced the government at the time to offer free education for students in Chile. And really that really opened the door for many poor families and gifted kids to go to college. So at this point in Chile, you can get free education, which actually, so, but I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question about, uh, you're talking about this period of time when the democratic elected uh, civilian presidents actually work towards um, validating this, the economical system that it was already in place. 
and Chile had the first women president in 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 Latin America, Michelle Bachelet. She was president twice. Um, but one of the things that we have learned from the periods when Bachelet and, and other presidents of the time were in power is that actually the International Monetary Fund uh, manipulated the, the numbers and depicted Chile as a very developed country and talk about macroeconomic um, indexes, describing a country that was very, very buoyant in in um, economically and making very well in the international market and so on. Meanwhile, a third of the population lived in extreme poverty. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon, how the larger uh, indexes describe countries in a manner that is so deceiving? Right. I mean, um, during the 1990s, but especially then um, in the in the uh, in the new millennium, Chile was was basically depicted as a, a portrayed as a as a neoliberal uh, poster poster child. It was uh, um, portrayed by um, international media outlets such as uh, the Economist, but you mentioned also the IMF or the World Bank as a as a model to follow. In Latin America, but also around the world, it has it had um, uh, high economic growth rates. On the one hand, you see also decline in poverty, um, but at the at the same time, uh, Chile and uh, uh, resulted in being one of um, Latin America's and also the world's most unequal countries in the world, um, with a very precarious pension system. Uh, a highly uh, a large number of Chilean workers ended up indebted, um, a very precarious also educational system, uh, also very precarious healthcare system where the, va the vast majority of Chilean workers basically had to work uh, two jobs in order to survive and, uh, and uh, found it really difficult to be part of this economic um, expansion. So I think from, because you mentioned the IMF and the World Bank, I think uh, these numbers, of course, um, were uh, were shown or, or were supposed to to demonstrate to the world that neoliberalism is actually the way to go, and of course it also provided, um, let's say, um, a positive example to other countries in Latin America uh, during that time, during uh, which during that time were also implementing neoliberalism, especially during the 1990s, that it was basically the the uh, the, the the model to follow. And um, it's also important to mention that during the so-called pink tide, that it's, it's, it's a wave of, let's say, left to center-left governments that were, that, uh, were in power in, in Latin America between 1999 with the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. And, and uh, 2014, Chile was uh, only part uh, or partly part of the of that of that pink tide uh, during the um, Michel uh, Bachelet government, but I would argue that uh, even during her uh, um, her presidencies, um, the neoliberal consensus was not uh, um, really called into question, and the, the structural power of foreign capital and also of uh, of Chile's oligarchy was not. Was not was not questioned by her government, uh, and uh, and so um, uh, let's say this new liberal orientation basically uh, was uh, was kept in place uh, and, and, and until and, uh, has been kept in place until today. 
and it was one of the main reasons why um, you know the the protests in 2019 erupted, right? And um, yeah. Did you say that you were there in Chile for those yes. uh, protests? Yes, I was there. If you if you could uh, tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. who was involved uh, and um, what the demands were uh, right. and and the direction and success or lack of success of the movement. Right. Um, the protest broke out in early October 2019. Uh, again, uh, high school students organized protests at different uh, subway stations in Chile. They basically jumped over the... Um, uh, what it, what are they called? So turnstiles and encourage people not to pay because uh, Chile uh, or Santiago, the Chile, the capital, has uh, a, a privatized uh, subway system, and it's uh, it's uh, um, and so basically they organized protests there, and the protests were spreading. Uh, there was a lot of repression by the police, and. Um, in during uh, the, the the following days, more and more people joined the protests, and uh, it culminated in a mass uh, demonstration in Santiago, which then spread also to other regions of of the country. And in in and in on October twenty fifth, um, Chile saw one of the the country's largest mass protests uh, in in the country's history. And from then onwards, you 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 know the protests uh, spread to other parts, and they basically were kept alive roughly until March, the 2020, 2020 when uh, the COVID pandemic basically put a halt to these protests. Um, the demands were, as I said before, um, basically an end to uh, neoliberalism. What the people were protesting against. Uh, low pensions, against precarious working conditions, against um, excessive or, or very, very high and costly highway tolls. They were protesting against the uh, um, environmental devastation by, by mining companies. They were protesting against the state uh, um, um, repression and state violence uh, occurring in the... Um, Indigenous Mapuche territories in the south. They were also protesting against um, the, uh, the the uh, the constitution, as I as I said before, that is still in place as we speak. And uh, as an as a as a specific outcome of the protest in November, the Piñera uh, government uh, agreed on uh, on on a referendum. About is there a trade union movement of any strength in Chile? Yeah, trade unions also played an important, uh, important role. But what was, what was really interesting was that um, uh, the, the protest movements uh, that, uh, showed a, uh, let's see, um, or they maintained a very, very, um, uh, let's say, oppositional stance towards any sort of political parties. What you could see is that the the uh, the uh, not let's say the frustration with the uh, uh, with the coalition that uh, ruled um, Chile during uh, the uh, during the decades after the the, the Pinochet dictatorship um, led to a situation where a lot of people were just fed up with the political establishment and they rejected all political parties. 
right? So these uh, protests were uh, rather marked by independent social movements, feminist movements, uh, a high presence of 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 young uh, young um, Chileans that were at the forefront of fighting the police and. Uh, yeah, and organizing the protests. Trade unions have played a secondary role and political parties were uh, were uh, also in, in, the, in the background in comparison to social movements. Also indigenous movements were very, very prominently uh, leading the protests, especially in the South. Yeah, I wanted to mention that actually October 5th is a very important date for us in Chile because that's the day in 1988 when it was the um, when Pinochet asked the population if we wanted him to be a democratic candidate as a president, so that election that um, it was uh, Pinochet had to have this uh, a popular vote uh, in 1988, October 5th. It was because the international pressure against the a tight control that he had again in the country. And then uh, another thing interesting that you mentioned, um, Aaron, and I want to amplify it, is the thing that uh, when the estallido social, you know, uh, social ma massive demonstrations started occurring, it were exactly because the government decided to raise the price of the subway, as you were saying, 30 pesos, which is like a 30 cents. Uh, <clears throat> and the even people less, in Chile, even less. <laughs> even less than 30 cents, yeah. uh, the cents. price, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, but people came out and said, The problem are not 30 pesos, 30, 30 cents. The problem are 30 years right. of us being under democracy. They were referring to the time when the Pinochet era ended in 1989. Right. And uh, it was 19, uh, 2019, and um, could you explain a little bit how the how this neoliberal program uh, affected the pensions in Chile? Because here in the United yeah. States, we are all uh, a nation of immigrants, including myself, very proud of paying our taxes and putting money in our social security retirement accounts. Yeah. And it's something that in Chile also was sell as an opportunity to make an incredible amount of money. So yeah. everybody in Chile was by law, by these neoliberal laws, forced to move from the government-run pension system to a privatized system. This is part of the neoliberal um the neoliberal experiment that is not an experiment in Chile. So could you talk a, lot, a, little, a little bit about how that impacted the pensions? Because what uh, my generation is facing now, we are facing that we have no money in our pensions. Um, there will be no retirement money for my generation. Right. And that, I will comment briefly on what, what you said before about this relation between the the uh, 30 pesos um, um, rise of the, of the of the subway tickets and the 30 years uh, after the, the after the military dictatorship of Pinochet. Um, what people were basically saying was that it's 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 not the uh, this minimal rise of the of the of the subway fare that's bothering us. 
It's rather the fact that for the, for the majority of Chileans, neoliberalism has not really meant a significant um, improvement of, of, of living conditions. As I, as I mentioned before, uh, in Chile, basically everything is privatized. Everything is a commodity. And um, everything is basically a business for a tiny minority of, uh, uh, of big banks, of big uh, corporations that, uh, that uh, have, uh, let's say, uh, profited and benefited from, uh, from uh, these neoliberal reforms under, under Pinochet and, of course, also the consolidation of the neoliberal um, system um, during the, the post uh, uh, um, the dictatorship period. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the pension system. As you said before, in uh, the, the Chilean constitution forces uh, workers to pay into private pension funds. These private pension funds, they ad administer the, the, uh, the, the, the contribution, the, the pension contributions of, of the workers. They use this money for uh, speculative purposes, or they buy um, uh, uh, sovereign debt bonds um, of the civilian government. So for them, it's basically a, a big uh, opportunity to um, say to, uh, to to invest this money on on financial markets. And for the average worker, it's basically uh, it, it, this private pension system basically. Uh, means a pension that is not uh, is not high enough to to make a living so um, um, a significant uh, sector of Chilean workers uh, uh, cannot live from from what they get out of the of, of the private pension system and of course this was one of the main concerns of the protesters and um, and let's say this uh, this idea that um, Everything is a commodity, and so uh, in, for for the sake that a tiny minority of big companies or big banks can benefit uh, to the detriment of the population, penetrates every sector of of Chilean society, right? And uh, people were fed up with the with the fact that politics basically was not uh, even trying to 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 bring about structural changes. And the constitution, as I mentioned before, was one of the essential demands. Or a new constitution was uh, was a central demand of the protesters because the constitution ensured that these sort um, these neoliberal reforms would stay in place, and that political parties could not really, um, let's say, transform uh, Chile's economy um, and. And go beyond neoliberalism, right? And and have a more, let's say, proactive role of the state, uh, public uh, pension system, or a, a public healthcare system, or a public education system. So let's say these uh, neoliberal reforms were were the dominating or neoliberal. Let's put it this way: was dominating all sectors uh, and all aspects of of, of social life in Chile. Um, I, I'd like to ask you about the new president, Boric, but okay. just let me uh, identify us uh, before we go there. Uh, this is KZYX, uh, Mendocino County Community Radio. This is Loretta Rojas, and I'm Cal Winslow, and we're talking with Aaron Taus. 
who is an affiliated researcher at the Austrian Institute uh, for International Affairs. Now, I think we have a little bit of time left on a very important question. Talk to us, if you will, about the new president and about the constitutional crisis. Uh, and, and especially about the president, I think people would like to know about, about him. Um, just new president is called Gavril Boric. He is a former student leader, and uh, Boric he was um, he was one of let's say the most prominent uh, uh, student leaders during the 2011 protests that uh, rocked the country. Um, as I mentioned before, he became Chile's um, youngest president in in the country's history defeating the right-wing candidate uh, Jose Antonio Cast, who was basi basically uh, supporting um, the, uh, the neoliberalism, who was also supporting the, uh, uh, let's say, the, um, um, the reforms that were introduced by, under, under, under Pinochet. So, uh, as I said before, the new constitution um, was one of the central demands of the protesters in during the 2019 and 2020 uh, protests that uh, they shook the country. Uh, Gavin Boric was uh, uh, from the beginning was was uh, supporting the demands of the protesters, um, and um, he was also part of a let's say of a of a group that uh, basically reached an agreement with the then president, uh, um, Sebastian Piñera in November, 2019, that included a referendum over a new constitution. Gabriel Boric was then the deputy um, in the lower chamber and he, support, he supported this pact. Um, very critical as well, that is that is uh, not so often mentioned, is the fact that Gabriel Boric during this time also approved uh, re uh, repressive legislation against the protesters. Uh, he's, he's often portrayed as, let's say, as a, as a leftist uh, uh, president and as a supporter of the social movements. But if you take a closer look, you could see that, and this is also the, the, the criticism he has been receiving from the left and from social movements, that he has been basically um, part of these uh, of this small group within uh, uh, this um, let's say um, center uh, leftist coalition called Frente Amplio um, that aimed to to let's say to um, to reach an agreement with the protesters and to move towards a referendum over new constitution. Um, and this pact is, uh, or let's say this 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 um, this agreement is all, is often portrayed as an elite pact to save the political class and to protect the uh, neoliberal system. Um, because what's really important to understand is, and now I don't want to go too much into detail, but let's say part of the deal that Gabriel uh, Boric hammered out with uh, with the um, then President Piñera was. Um, a two-third supermajority that would that would that would rule out any sort of let's say radical transformation because every article in the draft constitution needed to have needed to be passed by two-thirds uh, supermajority 
and that protected the system from potential radical transformation. In October 2020, 80% of the Chileans voted in favor of the, let's say, of, of, of a new, uh, of a new uh, constitution. In, in May 2021, um, um, elections to, to the Constitutional Assembly were held. And um, um, what's interesting there is you could, you could also see that the, 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 the crisis of political uh, representation um, was also visible during, during that, uh, uh, those elections. Because thirty-five percent of the uh, of the elected um, members to that to that assembly were independent representatives, um, but but as the let's say the, the process of the elaboration of the constitution later showed, was the fact that a lot of these in the so-called independent candidates actually supported. Um, Let's, but, or let's put it this way, not, did not really support social movements and, and local organizations, but indirectly supported established parties and blocked uh, uh, radical transformation. And the same also went for, for, for indigenous representatives. Half of the indigenous representatives also were members of political parties. So... Um, Let's say during the the uh, let's say during the process of of or during the uh, during the elaboration of the of the constitution, what you could see is that um, let's say radical articles such as the nationalization of the mining industry were not approved by the representatives of um, of uh, of many independent and indigenous uh, 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 parties and. And so you could see that, let's say, um, um, that let's say social movements or, 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 or leftist movements that were really aiming for a more radical proposal uh, actually did not have a majority in, in that assembly. And that so-called independent candidates that were presenting themselves as not being a part of any political parties were eventually supporting let's say, the established order and also the neoliberal constitution undermining the attempts to come up with more uh, radical, uh, radical um, let's say, uh, proposals that uh, would, have, uh, would, have, um, would have been part of the, of the constitution. So... Aaron, um, uh, in your yeah. research, have you seen other countries uh, intenting a change like Chile tried to do it with this? I mean, you know, there were... Yeah. Massive demonstrations, and then the government have to veer towards these demands, except yeah. that people, you know, was very disgusted with with the status quo that yeah. has been lingering for 50 years this year. And uh, and then they decided to have a popular vote that said, yeah, we want a new constitution, creating this uh, organization, this corps, uh, corp of uh, individuals, to discuss all of this and then writing a constitution that was actually rejected. So could you, do you know of any other country, because this is being addressed or presented as a process right. where democratically, Chilean way we say, right? Um, trying to change the way our countries rule. Yes, 
I, I, I just, I just want to get a couple of examples. Uh, Venezuela in, uh, in 1999, under the leadership of Chavez, also tried to elaborate a, a new constitution. And also um, in Bolivia 2008 and in Ecuador 2009, or, or vice versa, not too sure, were also two processes where, where um, let's say, left-leaning governments uh, took the initiative and pushed for uh, a, new, uh, a new constitution. But also in Colombia, in Colombia in 1991, um, a constitutional assembly that um, was actually uh, in part made up of former guerrillas also drafted a new constitution. And, and what's interesting, and I think this is, this is also important to understand, uh, uh, um, let's say the Chilean case, or for the Chilean case, is the fact that Colombia, as one of uh, the world's most progressive uh, constitutions, but on the ground, very little has changed. Most of the constitution that was passed in 1991 is that letter and hasn't really let's say, translated into any significant material transformations on the ground. But what I wanted to say before is that, let's say, um, Gabriel Boric, even though he's presented as, as a former, or he was a former student leader and is often portrayed as, as a leftist, I think there, there's more evidence that shows that he was actually on board with those forces that wanted to, to quell the protests and that wanted to, let's say, to consolidate the established order by pushing for that referendum, because that referendum, um, let's put it this way, the Chilean rights wanted to ensure that even though um, people voted in favor of the constitution, that the very process of, of, of drafting a constitution would be undermined by, uh, let's say, by, 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 by the right or by so-called independent candidates. So the, the end result wasn't really radical but in addition as as you said before in september 2022 62 percent of chileans actually rejected this new constitution it wasn't a socialist constitution i think it was a progressive constitution it was a feminist constitution it was a constitution that defended the rights of, of also of the mapuche territories in the south would definitely um have meant let's say um uh, would have meant a step towards a more social democratic uh, form of, uh, of, let's say, of, um, of, of government, more in, in, in state intervention, more public services, etc. But it was not, let's say, a revolutionary constitution, as it was often portrayed in, in the media. But what's interesting is that the right, with the help of the media, uh, let's say orchestrated a, a campaign uh, based on disinformation. And so um, the vast majority of, 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 of Chileans, as I said before, rejected the constitution. And what's, what's now interesting is the fact that um, W. Boric is, is now, uh, is now uh, 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 let's say, announced that a new constituent process will be launched in which a committee of experts appointed by political parties will write a new text based on pre-established agreements that basically aimed at preserving the current model. So what's really frustrating in, in, in if you take a look now at you know at what what has happened in Chile over the past four years is that you know all these efforts by Chile by, by young Chilean social movement popular organizations Mapuche government environmental organizations, and even the election of Gabriel Boric, um, 
has has not been enough to bring about any substantive change. And so what's very likely is that Chile will get a new constitution that will maybe change things, bits and pieces here and there. But let's say the overall um, oligarchic and plutocratic um, character of Chilean's political system and, and, and its economy will most probably be preserved. Just in a, in a word, is, is there reason to be hopeful for serious change in, in the continent or are they stuck? I think what's interesting about Latin America is that it's the most revolutionary or it has been the most revolutionary continent over the past uh, over the past decades latin america has also tried to come up with an alternative to uh to capitalism in in different countries uh, even though the the you know the the process in, in venezuela has been uh, damaged and has uh, taken on a very authoritarian form but uh, i would argue that especially um, Latin America's younger generation, be it now in Colombia, be it now in Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, and in many other countries, um, they share a, a strong desire for a more egalitarian, a more peaceful, and a more democratic uh, continent. And they're also willing to stand up not only uh, to the powers, uh, to the power of, of its national oligarchies, but what you also see in Latin America especially in, uh, in, in, in the younger generation, is a rejection of U.S. Uh, hegemony in Latin America and U.S. imperialism. So um, Latin America is definitely uh, a, a continent that will keep playing an important geopolitical role in, in, the, in, the, in the decades uh, to come. Well, thank you so much, Aaron Taus. This has been such a great conversation. Thanks, and hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you, guys. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.